Okay, quick background just so we get some um, context historically, okay? So here's the Jacobian timeline. Again, if you want to sound like a good you know, teacher, you say Jacobian. You don't like, this is the timeline of Jacob. So according to the Jacobian timeline, <laughs> Jacob is um, 77 to, or to 80 years old when he meets Rachel, okay? So when he leaves his father and his mother and goes to his uncle to pick up uh, a wife, he's between 77 and 80. Isaac is 40 years old <clears throat> when um, he marries. Now, Isaac, which is, of course, Jacob's father, so he married a bit younger. Now, Isaac um, is 60 when Jacob is born. I'm kind of looking at the, I, I want to emphasize the, the length of ages these guys lived again. They lived long, and it's just late time and getting married. And then Isaac lives to be 180 years old, okay? Again, Jacob's father. Now, Jacob lived, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, for 20 years with Laban. Okay, so Jacob was, and then later on in Jacob's life, Jacob is 90 years old when, J, when Joseph was born, okay? So at this point right now, in this context, Jacob is just a little bit over 90, okay? And then Jacob is, um, well, actually, he's about 97 to 100 years old when he leaves his father-in-law, Laban. So he's almost 100 at this point, okay? And then when Laban... Um, <clears throat> Is he chases uh, after Jacob, which we're going to find out in this text. Again, this is between 97 and 100. Then he meets, Jacob meets Esau, his brother, who is, uh, there's going to be conflict coming up in the next couple chapters, okay? And then Joseph is sold into slavery 17, at 17 years old to the Midianites. And Jacob at that time is about 117. Okay, so about 17 to 20 years into the future, his youngest son, Joseph, who at this time, we're not exactly sure the correct age for sure, is going to be sold into slavery. Okay, so it's actually, well, he could be about four years old, maybe as old as seven, um, when Joseph is um, at this point here as Jacob leaves uh, Laban. Okay, so 13 years after this event, he goes to Egypt. And, uh, or excuse me, and then Jacob was 117 when Joseph was taken, actually, uh, by his brothers and sold to, Midian, to, uh, sold to the Midianites' hands. So um, after he's sold, Joseph is in bondage for 13 years before Jacob goes to see his son, who is in charge of, of things. Joseph's in charge in Egypt. And then Jacob dies at 147 years old. So I'm sorry, I was a little bit confusing. I didn't make it as clear as I hoped to. <laughs> but long story short, at this point, Jacob is somewhere close to 100 years old. Not over 100 and not younger than 97. He's an older guy, okay? So just to give you guys how this ties in with the rest of the narrative with Joseph coming up and so on and so forth. Now, there is... Um, just giving you the, the general narrative of chapter 31, and then we're going to go into the details later. Now, if you remember, Jacob, by doing math, okay, he first serves Laban, his uncle, for seven years with what he hopes to be his first wife, Rachel. Turns out to be Rachel, right? So then the father, you know, through that deceit, Laban, the father of, of uh, Rachel, after he gives uh, Jacob Leah, Jacob agrees to work seven more years and stay with Laban for Rachel. So now that's up to 14 years, and he wants to leave his father, go back to the home country with his mom, ideally, and his dad, and establish his family there. But 
he stays for another six years by an agreement through Laban and some more trickery going on. So we're now we're doing the numbers. We got seven plus seven plus six years, as the scripture reveals later on here in this text. So we come up with 20 years now that Jacob is going to be serving Laban. So as Jacob now is serving Laban for these 20 years, if these 20 years are up, he wants to leave. So he's all ready to go, and he knows he has to leave under the cover of darkness because, well, we'll look at the text a little bit later exactly why. So he has to depart because of Laban's um, uh, herdsmen. And he recognizes what's going to happen, that Laban doesn't want him to leave. There's this jealousy happening, so he gets uh, he's a little surreptitious with his, his family and his children, and he's going to go take off under cover of darkness. And so as he does so, we have a crazy event in which Rachel steals her father's gods, which is a hilarious thing to say. say. Rachel stole her dad's gods. <laughs> hilarious, right? They were idols. They were teraphim, is the Hebrew word teraphim. So she steals his gods, which sets up a huge conflict between Laban and Jacob, which we're going to read about. And going through this conflict, um, we see this narrative, this long conversation between Jacob and his father Laban. And it's one of the longest conversations that we see in Scripture. It's this really fun back and forth. And we're going to see some really interesting things with Laban and his confession as Yahweh being God, however, not being converted and following God fully because he's still worshiping other gods and idols. But we see Laban make a confession that Yahweh may be the greatest God of all, maybe, but he recognizes that Yahweh truly is one of many gods. Okay, we see some, something similar to Nebuchadnezzar and other kings in the past where they recognized Yahweh as God, but just added him to their other idols and their other pantheon of gods. And so this is a really wild interaction that we see take place. Now, what is wild here is we're seeing a lot of the consequences from previous actions catch up. You reap what you sow. So we're going to see the consequences of Rachel, of Jacob, of Laban, and all the seeds of deceit that they had planted, all the heel catching and all the supplanting they did, all of a sudden comes to a head. All the conflicts that we have gone over and all of this function we've been studying for weeks now in this biblical account are really getting maximized. And as I was looking at and thinking about how all these things are building up, I couldn't help but think of our lives and oftentimes, when we finally get rid of what would be considered an easily besetting sin or sins that we've been kind of hiding, our little idols and teraphim that we are hiding, that Rachel will see was hiding, all of a sudden manifest in a way that's so disastrous and so destructive in our lives that we find like, I got to stop this sin. This is, look what has accumulated. And we get so sick of it that we finally repent. And what I would like to challenge us all is in our sanctification is to not be at a place in our walk where sin is finally destroyed so much and our families are destroyed, our walks are destroyed, our children may be destroyed, our relationships in our church may be destroyed, and then we finally say, okay, God, I'll stop. But we need to do it because we are God's slaves. We're his doulos, we are his servants, and he said, do it. So we need to do it simply as an act of worship to God, right? And so when we're convicted, we need to get rid of these things. And you can't help but to think, what would have happened if they would not have sown in, uh, seeds to the wind and they didn't reap the whirlwind in these accounts? But anyway, having said those things, here we still see God's beautiful sovereignty and his grace and his mercy taking situations that were just awful 
and turning him into this wonderful situation of God finally moving Jacob out of the bondage to his father-in-law, Laban, and all the trickery that's going on, and moving him out of this crazy competition between women, between Rachel and Leah and Zipporah and, and, these, and the handmaids, and all this competition with children and all this dysfunction. It must have been so hard after 20 years of all this mess. So finally, we start to see God kind of calming the situation down. It's like, okay, good. Now Jacob is moving back to the land that God had called him to with his family. And we're going to see a, a beautiful thing become to be established. That eventually gets ruined by sin as well. But anyway, we're going to see a little bit of resolution. We're also going to see Jacob continue to grow in his sanctification as he begins to trust more clearly and more confidently the promises of God. So we're going to see his sanctification in Jacob's life, which is really, really good to see. And, and this is what we've seen right from the beginning of Genesis, right? We see the sin, we see the manifestation of it, we see God's grace and his mercy, his conviction, his provision for forgiveness, and we see the sacrifice of animals and lots of blood over and over again that points to what? Christ being the final uh, lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. world. And in all of that, we watch these believers as they become walk into greater sanctification. And we see that in our walks, ideally, right? That we become more sanctified. So um, those are some key themes to look out for. One other thing I wanted to point out in this narrative that struck me is that even though Jacob is growing in sanctification, I'm struck with the fact that so many people close to him don't appear to have any kind of rebuke from him or any kind of discipline or discipling from him in order to serve the one true living God, Yahweh. He appears to allow tremendous amounts of compromise, so much so that his wife, as I said, Rachel, steals God's and, and walks away with her, her father's idols. And it, it, you, you can't but help wonder, Jake, what have you been saying to this woman who you've known for 20 years? For 14 years, you've been married to this woman, and yet... She's still worshiping idols? What is going on? And the natural order of things is such that we see in Scripture, we see practically that a wife will oftentimes follow a godly husband who is leading her properly, at least in, in as far as not worshiping idols. Right? And this seems like not too hard of a thing to do. So there's some complications here, with again, with Jacob not really being the patriarch that God had called him to be. And again, at 100 years old, and he still has yet to... Um, I wanted to use a phrase that us guys use, but I won't. But he still has yet to become a man, it seems like. Yet in this passage, it seems like he's putting his foot down. He's like, okay, I'm going to be a man about this, and we'll see this conflict with Laban. He's like, enough's enough, Laban. I'm done with you. Okay, so having said that, let's go to Isaiah chapter 54. If your finger is there, awesome. So we're going to look at Isaiah 54, and we're going to look at God's promises to Israel here. Now, Jacob's name is going to be changed to Israel in a few years. So when we're looking at the New Testament prophecies, and we look at God speaking of Jacob here in this context, it's not Jacob the man, but it's Jacob as the nation of Israel. So in Isaiah chapter 54... We're looking at God speaking to his people. Now, in Isaiah, if you remember, God is rebuking his people for falling into idolatry and worshiping of false gods. A Syri the Syrian nation is um, in the process of um, 
oppressing Israel. And God is, is telling them that I have sent this nation to bring discipline to you. But then he brings this word of encouragement. And you're going to see why this connects with this passage here in Genesis in a moment. But I wanted to start here with um, a beautiful, beautiful prose where God speaks so wonderfully metaphorically as Israel being the apple of his eye, as being his bride, and he's the husband, and how he cherishes this, this bride, and how he's going to take care of her and nurture her, and all these promises. And we can see these promises to us as well as believers. I mean, it's really clear. It's directly related to us as believers, anyone who believes the promises of God. And starting in verse 9 of chapter 4, this is like the days of Noah to me. Yes, uh, Isaiah 54, starting in verse 9. Did I say 44? You said 4. Oh. 54, verse 9. Here's God speaking to his people. Now listen to this. This is just listen to God's heart, his voice, his, his love for his people, as well as the power of, his, of, of the imagery that he's speaking of. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. And I will not rebuke you. For the, mount, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and I will lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a, a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones, and all your children shall be taught by the Lord Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. And if anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. And this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. So here we see God saying he's going to do a work for his people in which his children will be taught of the Lord, in which our children will be taught of the Lord, raised in the training and the admonition of the Lord, and we can watch them prosper. That the weapons that the enemy has formed against us will not prosper, but God turns it on its head and says he has actually created a smith to blow on the coals and fire for weapons that he has, that he's going to use for his purpose against us, the enemies that are against us. And we see in scripture uh, that when God speaks of us having a quiver, our children being quivers as arrows, those arrows speak of God's work against the enemy. As we're raising a godly lineage and a godly history of children in our churches and in our homes, which is, of course, our church is the outreach of our homes, this is going to be the advancing kingdom of God as it goes into the world and makes and subdues all of creation to God's glory. It's part of the dominion mandate. 
of what God has called us to do. And God's promising his people, look at you've been in sin. I have rebuked you, but now look at here's the ultimate result. I am going to bless you. I'm going to form weapons that I'm going to use against the enemy. Now go to Habakkuk in chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 5. Now, in verse 5, we see wine um, personified as an arrogant man. And I want, you to, I want to go to verse 5 because this reminds me of Laban. Laban is obsessed with getting wealth and controlling everything and taking everything. And so we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter, five, chapter 2, verse 5, and then we're going to scoot to, to verse 18. Okay, so 18 and 20, we're going to talk about idols, but I really didn't want to overlook chapter 2. And as much as I'd like to read the whole portion here in Habakkuk, we just don't have the time. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. If you remember Laban so far, does he seem like he's at rest? He's always conniving and scheming. An arrogant man who's never at rest. Now contrast that with what God said about what he's doing for his people. He's going to give us rest like we read in Isaiah. His greed is as wide as Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for grave. The grave, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So this man this, that is personified, a traitor, as wine, an arrogant man that we see as Laban, he tries to take his wives and his grandchildren back. We're going to read this. Laban is a perfect example here. He's completely contrasted with those who God, who God has redeemed by his grace, which is us, to use to bless people and for his kingdom to go forth. Look at verse 18 now. We're going to be speaking of idols, and this is going to tie into a lot of the portion, a good portion of what I want to talk about today, and that's idols and uh, false gods. Verse 18. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and let all the earth keep silence before him. So here with this amazing contrast that these idols that people are creating with what they find is the greatest things they can find on earth, gold and silver, overlaid with this dead piece of wood or pieces of stone, they create it, fashion it, and say, I'm going to worship you. You're my God. You created me. You're my father. You've brought forth life to me. And, and speaking to these things as if they're animate as if they can do something for them. The asinine position of this is incredible, but this is the depraved mind that is completely in total depravity. It's completely given over to its, the, the heart of man. And God needs to take the dead heart of man, create life in it, so he can recognize how foolish this is. And then God contrasts the idols with himself. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple, that the earth be silent before him. See, we are silent before the Lord because he is the only true God, which is the contrast to the idols being silent. <laughs> so beautiful contrast we see there. ESV, English Standard Version. Um, one other chapter uh, in Isaiah, chapter 44, and then we're going to go into Genesis. So Isaiah, flip back to Isaiah again, chapter 44, 
We're looking at verses 9 through 12. Famous portion of scripture here. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Here's God saying, look, I'm telling you what's going to happen in the future. He's going back to idols again in this chapter, okay? That Contrasting himself with the false gods that are surrounding Israel, that they worship these false gods. Verse 10. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I got to the, I went to the, I went to the wrong text. Hey, you're reading something I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to read Isaiah 43, but I cut that one out for timing purposes yeah. because I got so much scripture. Yeah. I apologize. Isaiah 44, 9 through 12. Okay. Um, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god? or cast an idol that is profitable for nothing. Behold, all companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble and let them stand forth. They shall be terrified and they shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and he works it over the coals and he fashions it, fashions it with hammers and he works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and then he faints. God's characterizing this man who's making a God as completely weak and frail. And see this contrast God's setting up with how he's created man versus how man in his abject pride can somehow, abject pride can say to God, I'm making my own gods as if he can do this. Yet he's not even strong enough without water to make something out of, out of metal. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil and he shapes it with planes and he marks it with a compass and he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. And he plants the cedar, and the rain nourishes it. And then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it, and he warms himself, and he kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol, and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself, and he says, Aha! I am warm. I have seen that fire. And the rest of it, he makes it to a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and he worships it and he prays to it. And he says, deliver me for you are my God. Dude, this contrast is amazing. So God is saying, I created man to enjoy my creation. Take dominion over it. Take a tree, burn it, make some great bread. Have some good food as it heats up the food. It heats up the, the meat. Create things for your house to enjoy. Create beauty from it. Fashion it after the shape of a man. And then make these, these beautiful works of art to glorify me and to enjoy it. But in this one sense in which God is declaring that this God has made man for, and the other part, guys, is look at the other half of this, what you're doing with it. You're creating an idol to worship, to create bondage, and to, to pursue sin. And then eventually to actually embrace demonic activity. And so look at verse 14 or verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. 
They've pursued their sin to a degree that their hearts have been seared as with a hot iron, and they no longer can receive conviction of sin. And God says, I'm giving you over to the pursuit of your false gods, of your idols. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and I have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I bow, fall down before a block of wood? So God is reasoning with them and they can't reason. They can't see, look what God has given me for blessing. Half of it I'm used for blessing instead of using the full thing for a blessing. And I wonder as us as believers, when we're pursuing our sin, are we not taking all the beauty that God has given us in creation? God has given us all this beauty of creation to give back to him in glory and receive so much wonderful blessings that we sow into our churches and our friends, our relationships and our families' lives to come out to full blessing. But yet many times in our lives, I fear that we take the blessings of God, take half of it, give it back to God, to God's glory. And then the other half we keep to ourselves in vanity. And then God says, what are you doing? Let's reason together. Son, daughter, why are you pursuing sin with my creation? Why are you chasing after all of these, this sinful nature? When God says, I've given all of this for a blessing for you. Verse 20, he feeds on ashes. The imagery is incredible. He's taking these ashes, and the imagery is that this man is taking these burnt ashes and throws it in his mouth. And he's chewing on burnt ashes, and he doesn't even know it. He's so given over to his sin, he's eating burnt ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. And he cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Wow. God, again, is saying, come, let us reason together. Yet man and his deluded heart cannot even do so. He's been given over so much. And this is why we, we celebrate, right? Is that God has done the work completely. We could not discern these things were it not for the grace of God. Verse 21, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Look at the beautiful contrast. Here we see God forming something to his glory that is so good that he breathes life into, contrasted with the wickedness of man and the creations of man's heart. Oh, Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and he will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things. Now, let's look at Genesis chapter 32. So in these passages, I wanted to contrast the creation of man that is perverted, that God has given us to enjoy and which we can take and really fully embrace. I mean, if we think about what man has done, he's taken these cedar trees or pieces of oak or poplar and he created a hollow body and stretched strings across it. So when Brother Tim is leading us, we have these songs that pierce our emotions and, and move us to glorify God together. That's a beautiful creation. And at the same time, we're seeing today that man take those same instruments as hands and he's literally mutilating children, moving their body parts. 
as little children. We see these so-called drag queens that are dressed up a lot of times like the teraphim we're going to look about as idols with exaggerated sexual organs. And that's what these teraphim were. They were idols, mostly gods of fertility in which they exaggerated their sexual organs. And we're seeing the exact same thing today with these so-called drag queens. I hate using that phrase because it gives some kind of legitimacy to it. But you see these abominations that are taking place. This is what man does. Apart from God's grace intervening and stopping us from pursuing our full sin, when he allows man to continue, this is the result of it. We've got doctors and surgeons literally violating the Hippocratic Oath that they said that they were committed to doing, which is doing no harm. And they're somehow justifying it as good. So anyway, chapter 31, let's look at this context. I knew it was going to be really hard to do this. And uh, 28 minutes. Okay. Well, I'm going to be doing some mental adjustments here as I'm going through this text. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will be keeping it to 60 minutes, I promise. Um, it might be a little bit longer, but um, I'm going to be thoughtful in regards to all of my notes here. I did not think it was going to take that long, but anyway. Okay, so give me a brief moment as I think about it. Okay, brief moment's over. <laughs> now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob is... T okay, <clears throat> let, me, let me start again. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. From what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. Is that true? Did he take any of his father's things? No way. Jacob was a really honorable guy in this. He worked really hard, blessed his father-in-law, and blessed him with a tremendous amounts of cattle and so on and so forth. What verse 1. Chapter? Chapter 31, verse 1. I said 32, didn't I? I apologize earlier. Okay, chapter 31, verse 1. And so he's gained all of this wealth. So this wealth that Jacob actually gained, we know that God says he gave it to him. It's interesting because we Tim taught on the whole spotted and speckled and striped and all that stuff. The commentary on that comes in this chapter, that God came to him in a dream and told him he was going to do it that way. Okay, so right in this chapter here, we're going to look at this. So God gave Jacob this wealth. And Jacob saw in verse 2 that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So Jacob's like, oh boy, here we go again. 20 years I've been serving this guy. I'm giving him lots of good stuff. Now what's he up to? Okay, so Jacob knows something's coming down. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. So here's a wonderful promise to Jacob that God is reiterating and, and, and promising him again. Now, Jacob's last conversation with God was at the ladder, Jacob's ladder when he saw the angels ascending and descending up to heaven. God speaking to him there at Bethel, the house of God. And now God's speaking to him again and saying, Jacob, I am with you. He's, re he's reassuring him as he has always done. We see God do this over and over again with his patriarchs or the people he's ministering to. It's not just the patriarchs, his fathers, but also the matriarchs, the women. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. I love this context because Jacob's identifying himself with his father, Isaac, going back to where the promises of God and Canaan were, were first uttered. He's been with me. You know that I have served your father with all of my strength, and yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. 
But God did not permit him to harm me. I love this scripture. God did not permit him to harm me. One of the reasons why I read in Habakkuk was that no weapon formed against you shall prosper is because God had purpose that Laban was not going to allow a single bit of damage to come to Jacob. And Jacob recognizes this. If I may put it this way, God did something terrible. He took away Laban's free will. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh, no, God would never violate your free will. Oh, yes, he does all day <laughs> because he loves us. Aren't you glad that God violates the free will of depraved men every day? Women, are you glad that God <laughs> deprived, deprived certain men of free will when they want to assault you? I'm sure Luke would like if God deprived <laughs> a bunch of people he meets daily of their free will more often. But, <laughs> but anyway, God did not permit him to harm me. So now we see Jacob begin to, he's, he's, in, a, he's in a problem. He's got a problem. So he's turning back to God. God speaks to him. And he's resting in the promises of God. He says, if he said this, um, if he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock, all the flock were striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father, and he's given them to me. Literally, the word taken away means snatched. It's translated that way in some versions. And the NET Bible is translated snatched. God has snatched away the livestock. This word comes up frequently in this text. Rachel snatches the idols. Laban goes to snatch back his family. God snatches away the livestock of his father. And so in the beginning season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Isn't this a beautiful reminder that God sees everything that's taking place? And these promises we know are for us as well, in the sense that God is perfectly omniscient and perfectly omnipotent in getting his will accomplished. And so frequently, most of that will is, is centered around blessing us. Of course, it's always around blessing us, but many times our circumstances can be blessed because of it. If we see good godly homes with good... We see so much fruit in that. It's so awesome to see raising children and grandchildren, babies, and churches growing because of our of our faithfulness to God. But anyway, look, I've seen the Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? So now we see Rachel and Leah's hearts are knitted with their their husband, which is, again, God's grace that these women didn't kill each other at this point, right, with this awful situation, this polygamy that is not God's desire for them. But anyway, so their heart is knitted with their, with their husband. And part of it is because they're seeing Laban, their father, and how deceitful he is, and probably a lot of that due to his polytheism. So in verse... 15, are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. These poor women are looked at as just nothing more than goods. That's how they were looked at. They saw their dad as seeing them as nothing more than goods to be bartered for. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. 
So this is kind of nice. We're starting to see some degree of sanctification even among these women who are raised in a polytheistic home with the understanding that they're kind of nothing more than chattel. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. And then he drove away all his livestock, or he took all of his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep. And Rachel stole, same word here, keeps coming up, or snatches away her father's household gods. I'm going to read that again. She stole her dad's gods. Just the commentary is really funny. If a god can be stolen, should he be worshipped? Now, this gets Laban so enraged when he finds out, who's stolen my gods? The absurdity is it's so funny. It reminds me of what could be like a Seinfeld episode. You know, it's like something crazy one of those guys would say. Just the absurdity of it all. So she steals her father's gods. Now, just a point here to be made with these gods. The word here is, is teraphim or teraphim in the Hebrew. There's lots of interesting commentaries on this. I won't go through all of the different thoughts on what exactly uh, these teraphim are. But the general consensus is this, is that they were certainly idols made of stone and of or of wood. They were worshipped in place of what they said were their gods. They very frequently were gods of fertility, male and female, but most often women. As I said before, with exaggerated body parts. And <clears throat> what happened was, they would take these and they would pray to them. And they believed they would go into different trances and use drugs, as is done today, to get to altered states of consciousness. And oftentimes, we, uh, we see today, we saw in the scripture, um, that demons actively would take control over people in this state. And this is happening more and more today in the history of America, maybe than it ever has. Ayahuasca is getting really popular. It's popularized by Joe Rogan and, and a bunch of other people. Um, DMT and psychedelic drugs that put people in an altered state of mind. The word for, for in the New Testament for witchcraft is pharmakia because the word pharmakia was connected with witchcraft and it was consuming of different drugs to place people in altered states of mind. It's where we get the English word pharmacy today because it is related to drug use. So we see that this divination that took place, and this is called divination, which in chapter 30 and verse 27, Laban mentions he learned by divination that God had blessed Jacob. Okay, so Laban was engaging in divination and trying to speak to these demons and, and gods. He may not have called it a demon, but trying to speak to these extra worldly supernatural spirits. And they communicated to them. One of the most hotly debated uh, portions of scripture is in, um, <clears throat> oh gosh, is it Kings or Samuel? Lose Kings. Where, no, I think it's Samuel, where King Saul actually inquired of the witch of Endor, if you remember, who he wasn't supposed to be doing that, obviously, because it was divination, and that was declared as a, a death penalty if you did that. And he goes to the witch of Endor, and what happens is Samuel comes back from the dead, speaks to the witch, the witch is blown away, she's startled by Samuel's appearance, and then he begins to speak to King Saul. Now there's debate whether or not this was a demon masquerading as Samuel, or whether or not God actually let Samuel leave paradise or whatever position he was in to actually talk to him. I won't get into that debate today, but it is interesting. Either way, there's something deeply devious that was happening with this communication. And in spite of it, um, despite it, God's grace is still present in all of these things. So here they are um, 
Rachel stealing what was familiar to her and something that she put her trust in, which is these little idols. So she steals her god, her dad's gods, which really were her gods. And she begins to um, obviously think and continue to think that this is going to bring her some kind of prosperity. And maybe she's thinking, I had these kids because of these gods. And so she didn't want to leave her gods behind because she's connecting it with her fertility. Very, very likely scenario. So even though we see Rachel previously in the last verse, and Leah for that matter, saying, we're going to follow you, Jacob, wherever you go, they're still holding on to syncretism. To them, Yahweh is not the true God. He's not the only God, I should say. Maybe the best, but not the only one. And Jacob, verse 20, tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had and rose and crossed the Euphrates, and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So he's heading back west towards uh, Canaan, okay? So he sets his face toward the hill country of Gilead. And when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and he pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night. And he said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So here's God's grace to Laban, the polytheistic demon-worshiping guy. Again, graciously speaking to Laban. Here's God being gracious to him. Now, one thing in this text that strikes me, and I have brought it up before too, is where is Jacob? Why is he not saying to these people, hey, listen, this Yahweh, he's the only true God. There is only one way. To, to, to heaven, there's only one way for actual blessing, and that's worshiping the true God, the living God of Israel. I, you know, it's, it's interesting to me that there doesn't appear to be any rebuke. So this guy is just kind of like doing his thing, accumulating wealth, want, wealth, wanting children, wanting wives, but not really an evangelical. <laughs> he doesn't appear to be trying to bless God. He doesn't it really doesn't appear to be looking at God's interests first and what God wants him to do. So here's God's grace to Laban. And Laban overtook Jacob in verse 25. And now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and with songs and tambourines and the lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? So here Laban gives him this whole scenario. Oh, I wanted to bless you. We're going to throw a feast. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to have dancing and song, playing the instrument. It's like a <laughs> <laughs> Certainly wasn't Jesus culture or Hillsong or Elevation. But anyway, I diverge. I diverge. But uh, so anyway, but, so here we go. The, the, here this guy's like, look, I wanted to have a good time with you and to celebrate and send you away and kiss my grinch. The guy's so full of lies. We know that's not true. We know that's not the case. He's such a schemer. But he's saying all these things. I wanted to be with my grandchildren. I wanted to bless you. I wanted to have a good time. He goes, but, not, but the worst thing of all, the worst thing you could have done is to take and steal my gods. 
<laughs> no, the worst thing he could have done is take your grandbabies away. If you take my grand, you guys cannot leave, live far away because I'm. That's bad. Okay, I will, I'll kill you, man. I'll beat you up. So uh, he's he can beat me up. Unfortunately, Luke can do it. But yeah, I know. Well, I mean, well, I'm imperfect. I'm imperfect. But, but if someone takes your grandbabies away, I mean, come on, right? I mean, that's like the worst thing you could do. But for Laban, the worst thing was to take his gods. Again, how funny is this text? You stole, you stole my gods. <laughs> He's like, why? It's so bizarre. So here Laban gives this whole soliloquy, basically, this, this whole speech, this, this, this rhetoric against Jacob. Look what Jacob's response is. He answers and he says to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. So this is a crazy thing that Jacob says, okay? So Jacob says, I was afraid because I thought basically that you were going to kill me, okay? He goes, um, you would take, or I thought you'd take your daughters from me by force. And if he tried to stop it, then Jacob feared for his life, okay? And so here Jacob is saying, look it, I feared you greatly. Now it's interesting because Jacob was trusting Yahweh. And so he's growing in this. And as we see us as Christians, we trust the promises of God. Sometimes we don't trust the promises. We waver back and forth. And this is where Jacob is. So he answers, I feared for you. I feared for my, I feared that you would take the daughters from me. And there was a, that was a reasonable expectation. I don't think it was a reasonable fear because God promised him he, that would not happen. But he was given to this, this bout of doubt. So, but look what he says. Anyone with whom you, you find your gods shall not live. What an ironic statement. He does not know that Rachel stole his, his father's gods, or Rachel stole her own gods, for that matter. He's making a statement saying, look it, we'll put them to death. Capital punishment for those who stole your gods. What a statement to make. He's actually making a death sentence against his, his wife, his favorite wife, Rachel. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours, and you may take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So he's like, look, go ahead, search, see if you can find your gods. <laughs> I love these statements. It's so wonderful to hear. And see if you can find your lost gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle, and she sat on them. <laughs> Rachel's being pretty clever here. Nice move, Rach. Yeah, right? I know. Well, it was. Uh, we would assume that she petted him with some kind of uh, blanket or, or something. And she sat on them. Uh, we see some – There's uh, artifacts have shown some idols to be really small, like nine inches. And some were really tall, right? So they were probably the smaller ones, okay? So anyway, she's hiding these idols. And look what she says to her father. She says um, – where else my my scripture here? Okay, now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry with me that I cannot rise before you. I'm sorry, Dad, I can't give you a hug and a kiss, but uh, the way of women is upon me. So she's got her period. I can't get up, Dad. It'll be a mess. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. I, I hope I'm not reading into this, but do you guys see Laban like fur furiously going, where are my gods? Where are my gods? Where are they? He's pulling up the blanket. He's pulling up the shawls and everything else, the camel bags. Looking, like, where's my gods? 
seen is amazing. <laughs> so he's all flustered that he can't find his gods. And then apparently she tricks him. She, pardon me? She's just laughing. Yeah, right, could be, right? Or sweating. <laughs> you know, she might, have heard her, she might have heard her husband say, I'll kill the person who took your gods. So, um, so this is interesting because um, this sin that was because of Rachel now leads to this conflict between Laban, a greater conflict between Laban and his son-in-law, Jacob. And then Jacob became angry, and then he berated Laban. I kind of like this. I don't see any reason to see Jacob do anything wrong here. Okay, enough's enough. I think finally Jacob is like at 100 years old. It's like, okay, I'm a man now. <laughs> so, Dad, <laughs> I'm, I'm, enough's enough, man. I've been 20 years I've been serving you. I gave you all this wealth. Now you're accusing me of stealing your gods. I have no interest in your gods because I worship Yahweh. That's nothing but just dung anyway. I don't want any of your gods. None of the people have stolen your gods. It's obviously true. And then he berates him. So he not only just gets angry at what Laban did, but he actively says, Laban, you're out of your mind. This is ridiculous. I'm done with you. So here we have some confidence and some boldness, I think, that Jacob is demonstrating. I think it's lacking. We've had this discussion before among brothers and sisters that sometimes we as Christians have been convinced that the greatest Christian virtue is so-called niceness. It's not. Nice is not a virtue. Nice means to say whatever you can to keep people from getting upset. Kindness is a virtue. Goodness is a virtue. Those are good things to be gracious and kind. But being nice is the worst thing you could possibly do because being nice is avoiding conflict at all costs. Okay? So he's like, we need to be a little bit more bold, a little more confident. That's one of the reasons why we're going to the Pittsburgh Community Center to stand up and tell these disgusting demon-possessed people that they need to repent of their sin. We need to, I don't want to say berate them necessarily, but we do need to speak boldly without any ounce of reserved embarrassment to say this is what God has said. Okay? And so Jacob's like, finally, he's acting like a man, acting like the patriarch that he should be. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin? that you have hotly pursued me. For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And there it was by day that he consumed me in the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, and I have served you for 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Love this speech. Jacob could say this confidently because he carried himself very admirably when it came to his work. He suffered abuse. Jesus said that when we suffer abuse wrongly, we should do so unto the Lord because it's, it's, it glorifies God. We should actually try to go the extra mile, right? We should do it Should do it all that we can as Christians, and many times being taken advantage of, not necessarily placing ourselves in positions of harm necessarily, okay? But we do need to suffer for righteousness' sake on occasion. 
Jacob did do this here, okay? He's saying, look, I suffered unjustly. I didn't have much to say about it. And now he's finally acting like a man, and he's saying, okay, that's it. I'm done. And look at his confidence. I love his confidence. I'm going to reread verse 42 because it's exciting to me. <laughs> if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Jacob knows the deceit of his father-in-law. But, but God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. I always love when God's got your back. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if God came to your boss at night sometime <laughs> at training and said, don't you dare go near my, my servant. That's my child. He might someday. Who knows? But verse 43, then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flock are my flocks. The hubris of this guy. Are his daughters his daughters? No. They're now <laughs> Jacob's wives. The grandchildren are not his children. They're his daughter and his son-in-law's children. The flocks are not his flocks. The hubris of this guy. Does this not remind you of back, going back to Habakkuk? When it said, and God was judging him, it said that those take that this the, the wine of being a traitor and can't have enough, but always keeping things under themselves. And he says, and all that you see is mine. <laughs> what? All that you see is mine? And Jacob must have been like, what are you talking about, old man? I'm going to punch you out. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom, whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So he's like, okay, I'm still wheeling and dealing is what he's doing. So Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. <clears throat> and they took stones and made a heap and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Sahuduta. Uh, but Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, now this is interesting, listen to what Laban says. The heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he, whoops. Yeah, this, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord, which is Yahweh here, okay. The Lord Yahweh watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppose my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, Although no one is with us, see that God is witness between you and me. Here's this wheeling, dealing, conniving, polytheistic <laughs> guy who is now taking Yahweh to use for his own purposes to try to appeal to Jacob. It's like, okay, I think I can use Yahweh now. Of course, Yahweh did speak to him, so he does believe that this Yahweh is a powerful God. And so yeah, he's, he tries to use Yahweh as a bargaining chip with Jacob. And so he says, look at Jacob, I'm holding your foot to the fire by your God. Okay, he's seeing what's happening between two, the two of us, so you better honor this covenant. <laughs> the, the, the spiritual blindness of this guy. He has never honored any of his covenants. He keeps on switching and flipping things around, and now he's trying to tell Jacob, hey, listen, he'll catch her, supplant her, deceive her. You better, you better not break this truce, this truce that I've come up with because, hey, God's watching you. Wow, the hubris is incredible. Then Laban said to Jacob, some more. See this heap and pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, 
and the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. Notice he doesn't say my God. He still, he recognizes the power of this Yahweh, but it's not his God. He has not been converted. His mind is still darkened. His heart is still a one of stone and has not been redeemed by God as Jacob's heart has been. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. So they ate bread and they spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned home. I did it. 56 minutes. I'm pretty happy. Okay, so um, just a one-minute conclusion here. So here <clears throat> we see Jacob now. God has used a lot of the compromise of his life. What I, I think, and I want to be careful here, what appears to be a lack of discipleship with his wives and a lack of really being confrontational with his father-in-law and continuing this pattern in which he's sowing these seeds of discord. And we're still, all this problems that's just coming up. And we're seeing God faithful and graciously um, reminding Jacob of the promises that he gave to him, that he's going to, he can safely leave. We see God being faithful to Jacob in revealing that God's came to Laban in a dream, speaking to this polytheistic lunatic, that he's not to touch Jacob. And so God is graciously uh, working through Jacob's sanctification, just as he's graciously working through our sanctification. And despite the fact that God is doing all, these, all this work in us, he is calling us, and we know this, to be living sacrifices. Just as these idols were created by the man's of hands, by man's hands that they worshipped and could be stolen, they were dumb and could not prophesy, could do nothing, God, on the other hand, has taken us and fashioned us as his children as his redeemed, and he's using us as his arrows as and his bow because the Lord is a warrior to accomplish his will. No weapon formed against us by the enemy can possibly prosper, but the weapon that God has formed for us will prosper, and we are the weapons in his hands. How exciting is that, that we now are fighting against the very thing that man has created to take glory away from God, the idols that they have fashioned. And so as living sacrifices, dying daily, like it, we're called to in Romans, as Paul wrote, that our reasonable service is to worship God. That's our whole life's desire is to worship God. So we're worshiping him how? By just enjoying the good things he's given us, by fellowshiping with one another, by repenting from sin, and by giving God the glory due his name. And so as we're watching Jacob now, we're going to watch him in the next few weeks, as we go over the next few chapters, we're going to watch him wrestle with God, we're going to watch him come to a point where he finally calls his family to repentance, to turn away from their false gods at the ripe age of like 117 or so. So all this incredible stuff that we watch as God continues this work in his life. So we, our prayer is that God would do that with us, right? This is why we meet together. So um, let's close in prayer um, and ask the Lord to, to do this work in us that he did in Jacob, and it's continuing to do in us. Father, we thank you for all of the uh, imagery, the metaphor, and all this wonderful, exciting, lofty language of Habakkuk and Isaiah, this uh, narrative here in Genesis, of this account of man's depravity, and yet your gracious kindness, your protection. You are the Redeemer. You are our Yahweh, our Lord. 
And we ask that we would be living sacrifices. We pray that the sins in our lives that we sometimes just wink at, that we kind of, yeah, I shouldn't do that. We kind of call them little stuff. Lord, it's all wretched sin. It's all what you died for. It's all that your wrath was poured out on your son for in our place. Oh, Father, please, please bring conviction. Please give us the power of your spirit to turn away from sin. Please give us the power to live victoriously over the ways of this world and compromise and all the temptations that are before us in social media, in our jobs, in our homes, 